Tell ladies and gentlemen of the jury your name, please, and spell your last name for the court clerk. Jason Van Dyke, V-A-N-D-Y-K-E. Did you ever have occasion to um, draw your gun? Unfortunately, I've had to. And how many times did you say you had to draw your gun? I don't know. Would it be more than 10? Yes. More than 20? Probably. At any time from 2001 until October 20th of 2014, did you ever fire your weapon? No, and I'm very proud of that. What was Laquan McDonald doing? Advancing on me. He did not look at us. He did not look towards our direction. He just kept looking uh, straight ahead. He looked deranged. This is clinical evidence of rage, aggressive, violent person. That is, in my opinion, caused by the PCP that they had used. I was yelling at him, drop the knife. I yelled, I don't know how many times, but that's all I, all I yelled. And did he keep advancing toward you? He never stopped. My opinion is that on 10-2014, Officer Jason Van Dyke responded to what he perceived was a deadly threat and responded in a way that, based on his training, was designed to neutralize that threat as he understood it. And I'll show you how much time you would have to react to me. Step, 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 step. I shot at that knife. My focus was just on that knife, and I just wanted him to get rid of that knife. That's all I could think. From WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune, this is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. I'm Jen White. Today in court, attorneys for Officer Jason Van Dyke rested their case. The defense presented its case over the span of more than a week and called 20 witnesses to the stand. We asked a couple of legal experts to join us and break down what we've seen so far. Sharon Mitchell Jr. is a former assistant Cook County public defender and is now deputy director of the Illinois Justice Project. And Steve Greenberg is a longtime criminal defense attorney. Steve, what do you think about the defense's decision to have Van Dyke take the stand? You almost had to in this case because the jurors wanted to look at him and see what he had to say. But it's risky. There was a lot of impeachment material. I did not think the prosecutors did a lot with him. I thought that uh, almost any Cook County prosecutor would have been much more aggressive and been able to accomplish more. Van Dyke had to convey to the jurors what he was looking at because the recreation didn't do it. The video doesn't do it. The problem was what he said he was seeing wasn't on the video. So the big push from the defense has been about Van Dyke feeling in fear of his life. Steve, did he make that case in his testimony? I'm not sure. I think that at best what they're going to get is an imperfect self-defense or a hung jury at this point. And and here's why. Um, I think the defense did a good job of trying to explain why a police officer can do what he does, of trying to get the psychology of, of policing across to the jury. But they called an expert yesterday and that expert said that on the way to the scene, Van Dyke was talking about how he was going to have to shoot the guy. So he went in, you know, premeditation is not an element of murder. But when the jurors hear that there was some premeditation, it makes it much more difficult to believe that this was just a spontaneous reaction to what he was observing on the scene. I I don't think that's going to be enough to get the prosecutors to a murder conviction. But I think it might be enough, those statements, to keep Van Dyke from getting a clean self-defense. 
So Steve has already said he didn't feel the prosecution pushed as hard against Van Dyke's testimony as they could have. Sharon, what was your take? I agree. You know, I talked to a really experienced attorney about two hours after the testimony, Jason Van Dyke, and the first thing that he said was that he was shocked that Van Dyke was still not on the stand. Uh, there was a thought that Van Dyke would just be dragged through the ringer Um pointed out inconsistencies between his testimony in the video, his testimony and his own expert's animation, uh, inconsistencies between his testimony and things he told uh, officers on the scene or his expert two years later. Um, people expected a really blistering and long and engaged cross-examination. And uh, although there were certain points hit, uh, many people feel that that did not happen. Well, and there was this interesting moment when prosecutors have Van Dyke looking at this animated video the defense entered into evidence. And Steve, the defense argued that this is basically the perspective of Van Dyke. This is what he was seeing. This is how far or close Laquan McDonald looked to him. But then Jason Van Dyke says, this isn't what I saw. Does that basically negate that piece of evidence? I don't think a jury is going to put a lot of weight in an animated video anyway. Uh, but when he said it, it it sort of undercut it a little bit, but it, it sort of undercut his credibility also because his team now is saying this is what he saw and now he's saying no, it wasn't. Uh, ultimately, what these jurors are going to have to decide is was he at all reasonable in perceiving this threat? And if they don't think he was reasonable in perceiving the threat, what was he thinking? Why did he act the way he did? They're not gonna. It's not gonna come across as a premeditated. I went out there to execute some guy. They're never gonna get there, in my opinion. Given the case the prosecution presented, and the case the defense has now presented, at best they're going to get to he overreacted. And then the question becomes, how does a jury want that verdict, want that opinion to be expressed? They're gonna get a lot of choices from this judge, more than you would normally get. They're gonna get a lot of instructions. And they're going to compromise somewhere. Another part of the defense's strategy in this case was to lay out a narrative that Laquan McDonald had a propensity for violence. Um, They called some witnesses to testify to the idea that he'd been violent before this interaction. Talk a little bit about the picture they were trying to paint of McDonald, Sharon. Um, You know, it started in the opening statement where they talked about um, McDonald rampaging throughout the entire city. It started uh, talking about things that happened the day before and then the day of. Uh, They wanted to portray him as somebody that was just out of control. And that theme kind of spread throughout the witnesses that they test. You heard um, talking about his time at JTDC, the juvenile detention center. And then even during the actual encounter where you saw Van Dyke come time and time again, talking about his eyes and talking about the look, uh, they it was almost like they wanted to portray him as kind of like a zombie, somebody that's a bit subhuman. It was it was what kind of they had to do. Uh, that's what happens in self-defense cases. But we'll see how the jury takes it. Well, and I wonder, Steve, how much that really matters since Jason Van Dyke had no previous interaction with Laquan McDonald. He didn't know anything about these past incidents. So 
how much does that support their narrative of the case? Well, I, I'll tell you where that kind of evidence helps a defendant. That helps in the case where you have a living witness and the witness says the defendant threw the first punch and you say, no, this guy's a raging lunatic. He's aggressive. And here's all these other instances where he had this kind of behavior. In this case, you have a video. It, it's all smoke and mirrors beyond that. This jury is going to go back and they're going to look at the video and they're going to look for, for truths in what Van Dyke described and they're going to decide, was McDonald aggressive towards him based on what he was seeing at the scene? They're not going to care what he did at the juvenile detention center or, or whether he asked some lady on the street for a car nicely or not nicely. They're just going to keep watching the video and they're going to be looking, frankly, for ways to find support in Van Dyke's story. And and that's where, unfortunately, I think the defense has a lot of problems. I think that could definitely happen. I, I would caution us to predicting what a jury would do. Um, you know, juries are inconsistent and they think about things not how we would normally think about them. So I, I think that the defense put those witnesses on for a reason. Um, they want to, I think, kind of steal a little bit, a bit of empathy from the state's attorneys. The state's attorneys have these videos and they have these shots. And they have this kind of grisly video. And if you think about that person as um, a young boy, then you would think about it differently than as a, the person who is a criminal or a person that was threatening people, whether it be at the Burger King or the Dunkin' Donuts and, you know, threatening to shoot, you know, judges. It may not be conscious, but subconsciously, I think you would think about a person like that differently. And, and that's the reason why the defense is putting that on. Well, and another element of the defense's case is, is about Van Dyke's state of mind. And they called um, Lawrence Miller. He's a psychologist. You know, talk about what he was trying, the case he was trying to make in support of Van Dyke. Well, I thought that was really powerful evidence, except for the couple of statements that came out through that testimony that he had made to his partner. Because... Uh, people naturally think that you're going to have a crystal clear memory of a traumatic event. And actually, the opposite is true. Research over the last couple of decades has showed us that eyewitness identifications aren't reliable. People's memories of traumatic events aren't reliable. People confess for various reasons that other than they committed the crime. Uh, so now the jury gets to see why there may have been some inconsistencies in what Van Dyke said that evening versus what the tape shows. And I thought that it was a good strategy to call that person before Van Dyke testified because I think then the jurors look at his testimony a little bit differently. And that may, in fact, explain why the prosecution went so easy on him. Do you think the prosecution was able to effectively push against that psychologist's testimony, Sharon? You know, the, their best point was that so much of the psychologist's opinion was based off of what Van Dyke told him. And if you believe that Van Dyke is a, a credible messenger on what happened on the, that night, then maybe the opinions of the psychologist uh, or the expert would be a bit inaccurate. So I think that's what they did the best. Mm. So there was another dramatic moment in the courtroom yesterday. The defense called a use of force expert. His name is Barry Broad. And, and they went through this process of using a measuring tape to show the distance of 13 feet between um, the defense attorney and the expert. And then the expert with a toy knife in his hand runs 13 feet to the defense attorney and 
pretends to to stab him to show how quickly you can cross that distance. Was that effective, Steve? It's effective if the jurors believe that Laquan McDonald was not walking away from the officer. It's effective. But if they think he was walking away from the officer, then it doesn't mean anything. Uh, They talk about the zone of danger when they train police officers. And once someone enters into the zone of danger, here's what you have to do. The, The more compelling argument, I think, for the defense from that perspective is that And what they've done a good job of doing is getting across to the jury that a police officer is different than everyone else. And there are different rules that apply to a police officer. And there's reasons why there's different rules that apply to a police officer. And a police officer from the first day he hits the academy is told, don't look at this situation the way everyone else would. You know, the the average citizen, we would expect him to just turn and run away from the guy. So uh, I think they've done a good job of that. And if the jurors think that there was or if they're searching for justification for the shooting, it may be helpful. You know, I want to hear from both of you about the the point in this case that stand out the most for you, either from the defense or the prosecution side. Steve? Well, for the defense, I think that the uh, the best evidence that they got out was Officer Walsh. I, I'm still scratching my head why the prosecution called him because I thought Officer well. Walsh made a very compelling case for self-defense, and he did it during the prosecutor's case, which means that the jurors already had that picture in their mind when they were hearing the rest of the prosecution's evidence. Uh, The best evidence for the prosecution is every time they play the video. And we should say that Officer Walsh was Jason Van Dyke's partner the night of the shooting. Sharon, what about you? I think the strongest part of the defense's case was really all the witnesses that they were able to, to put on to talk about. Laquan McDonald's past. And not that that evidence um, does much in itself, but it does distract. You know, how you decide this case really rides along whether you're thinking much more about Laquan McDonald's actions or whether you're thinking about Jason Van Dyke's actions. And the more the defense can draw you to Laquan McDonald is the least amount of time you're thinking about what uh, Jason Van Dyke did. So that distracting that distraction, I think, was really good for the defense. And they were able to do it for a very long period of time. They called multiple witnesses to talk about what Laquan McDonald was doing and not what Jason Van Dyke was doing. So both the prosecution and defense will be presenting their closing arguments tomorrow. Steve, what do they each need to do in those closing arguments to really sell their case to the jury? Well, the prosecution's always at an advantage in a criminal case because they get to go first and last. And I I tell people that uh, it's like physics. For every action, there's a reaction. So when the defense gives their argument, the prosecution can then respond to all the defense arguments and you can't do anything about it. Um, And I come back to the same thing. If I were the prosecutor, I'd just play the video. I'd just play the video. Uh, They'll start out by talking about jury instructions. Um, there will be some very complicated jury instructions in this case. The prosecution is going to want to tell the jurors that there aren't different rules for police officers at the end of the day. There might be little tweaks, but ultimately this guy went there. He was in no danger. This person's walking away from him. You can see it on the video. He pulls out his gun and he just blows his brains out, so to speak, for no reason whatsoever. None of the other officers did it. No one else felt the need to do it. And when he explained it to you, it wasn't a compelling case. The defense is going to have to focus on two things. One, there are different rules for police officers. And this was a guy with a knife who had attacked people, had attacked a car, was going around the neighborhood. The law says you can use force 
to stop force like that. And this was the appropriate moment. The law doesn't say that you necessarily have to wait for that person to attack you. And then they're also going to say, and and this is difficult because they're going to have to concede this. If you feel like he did something wrong, it's not murder. It was he overreacted, and but it's not murder. So it's always hard as a defense when you're arguing in the alternative because you're you're implicitly uh, you know you talked about earlier the the uh, subliminal messages and people's conscious feelings. You're sort of saying to them, well, I don't really believe my client's 100 percent not guilty, but he ain't guilty of this. Hmm. Sharon, your thoughts. Well, for the defense, they need to make Jason Van Dyke a hero. They need to make him a hero of the story. They need to make Laquan McDonald an imminent threat uh, that was threatening officers, that was potentially threatening uh, citizens in those two stores, whichever one you believe. Um, and if but for uh, Jason Van Dyke's decisive actions, um, we would not the story would end it differently. So they really want to shrink down those 16 shots into one very quick decision that was based on all the information that he had. So I don't think the defense is going to score any points with the jury by trying to make Jason Van Dyke a hero. In fact, I think that they have to take the opposite tact, and I think they've sort of taken it. He was doing what he was lawfully permitted to do. We may not like it. Uh, You don't have to give him a medal for it. But it's lawful. I think that if they try and get this jury to say what he did was correct and he should be praised for it, that they're going to lose some of the jurors. That's Steve Greenberg, a longtime criminal defense attorney, also with us Sharon Mitchell, Jr. He's a former Cook County assistant public defender and is now deputy director of the Illinois Justice Project. Sharon, Steve, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Closing arguments in Jason Van Dyke's murder trial are scheduled for tomorrow. Then the case will go to the 12 jurors. It's anyone's guess how long they'll deliberate, whether they'll return with a verdict, and what that verdict will be. The city's police department says it's preparing for community protests. And if Van Dyke is convicted of a serious crime, there could be strong reactions from rank-and-file police officers and their union. Chicago Tribune reporter Jeremy Gorner interviewed nearly a dozen officers and supervisors this week about the Van Dyke trial. Jeremy, even before a verdict, how has the trial affected officers, their behavior on the job, what they faced from citizens? What are they telling you? Well, Jen, um, it's been kind of mixed across the board from uh, among the officers I've spoken with. Some say you're not going to see any proactive policing from officers, which means getting out of your cars if you actually see something which doesn't require a 911 response. It's basically just getting out there on your own volition. However, others say that the damage is already done. Others have said proactive policing is a thing of the past anyway, and this and it was um, in part prompted by the release of the video in 2015. Okay, let's say the jury comes back with an acquittal. Jason Van Dyke not guilty on all charges. How are officers expecting the community to react? Again, mixed feelings across the board. Some thought that there's going to be rioting or some form of unrest close to rioting. Others don't think it's going to be as bad as some perceive. They do all, all of them do expect, you know, widespread protests. You know, one officer told me that um, he's worried that if his wife is home alone, she's been asking him about, you know, is there a gun in the house that I could have for safekeeping? Another officer told me that, um, you know, his his father was a policeman 50 years ago during the Martin Luther King riots. And 
Um, a couple months later, during the Democratic National Convention, he said that his father brought his mom and his older brothers out of state because, you know, they were worried about potential unrest during the DNC. Fifty years later, you know, he's raising that concern with his mother, who's, you know, now in her 80s, that of the possibility of having her move out of state if things get out of control. This particular officer, ironically, doesn't think that there's going to be unrest. But again, you know, there is that is on the minds of officers, no doubt. Jeremy, today, two Chicago pastors were at the courthouse and they had very different things to say about the upcoming verdict. This is Reverend Walter Harris from Cary Tercentenary AME Church and Gregory Sill Livingston from New Hope Baptist Church. Both churches are on the city's west side. We don't want what was in the past, dear Lord, the 60s. We want peace, Lord. We want an understanding among people that there is a better way to resolve issues. But, Lord, we're praying that all who are gathered together will hold hands and pray and ask that there will be resolution after the case has been resolved. Others are talking about no rioting. Dr. King said that riots are the screams of the oppressed. What we're talking about is justice. Before we talk about suppressing riots, let's talk about enabling justice in this case, which is on video, which everyone is seeing around the world. And we're just hoping that the right thing will be done. Justice. Before we talk about riots, justice. So, Jeremy, if Officer Van Dyke is convicted of first-degree murder or another crime that could put him in prison for years, you mentioned police officers potentially doing their jobs less effectively. I I mean, how serious of a concern is that? Again, based on the officers who I've spoken with, it seems like a pretty popular opinion that there has been de-policing, you know, since the release of the McDonald video. You know, there's obviously this fear among officers that they could get sued, indicted or fired for what they view as normal police work that could be perceived by the general public as being rogue. But, you know, some officers feel like, you know, if you have officers who are still out there being proactive, then, you know, if a um, if a conviction comes for Officer Van Dyke, then some of those officers may think twice as well. But a couple officers I spoke with don't feel that way. Others feel like, well, you know what? There needed to be change in the department. We were stopping too many people, um, violating people's rights. One officer I spoke with said that nowadays, especially with the release of the video, maybe it's a good thing that, you know, they're being more selective on who they stop and more selective on what kind of police work they do on the street because it's jammed them up in the past. What kinds of differences are you seeing in the reactions uh, between black officers and white officers when it comes to this trial? It's, it's interesting. So I, among the, um, the dozen I spoke with, I did talk to a couple officers of color. Uh, one officer told me, um, yesterday, you know, can I read you a quote? Sure. Okay. This officer said, quote, I think people are under the misconception that 100% of the department agrees with his actions, meaning Officer Van Dyke's actions. We might not say it out loud. And if we do, we might be perceived as disloyal. And I've actually heard this sentiment before. When they're talking to other officers, a lot of them are saying, oh, you did the right thing. You know, but there's some who feel otherwise. I will say this, and this has nothing to, and this includes um, officers of color who I spoke with. Everybody pretty much was in agreement of all the officers I spoke with. They don't think that he broke a law that would 
require him to be convicted of first-degree murder. However, they do think that he probably should be fired. They do think that he probably did violate um, department rules. You know, a couple of these officers were pointing out that even if there isn't a conviction, uh, in so many words what these officers were saying, this shooting has still changed the course of police work in Chicago forever. A backdrop of this case, though it wasn't introduced as part of the trial, is specifically around race and where policing and race intersect. Mm -hmm. What did officers have to say about that element of the community relations question? I mean, some officers are troubled by the media bringing up race as a factor. Um, You know, the notion that the media is always pointing out that Van Dyke is white and McDonald is black. What officers have told me instead is that you got to look at the totality of circumstances. Uh, What did Officer Van Dyke know when he was on his way to the scene? He heard a radio call of a guy breaking into a truck yard and then, you know, and then word that uh, he had a knife and that he punctured the tire of a squad car. And a knife is a dangerous weapon to police. They, under the law, can use force you know, against a suspect carrying a knife. That, that's strictly how they were looking, how officers I've spoken to are looking at it, not, you know, a black-white thing. Basically. But at the same time, the Department of Justice investigation did show that there was a history of abusive policies and practices when it came to how specifically communities of color were being policed in Chicago. So how do they talk about that? You know, there's obviously some acknowledgement you know, from some officers, especially those officers of color who I've spoken with, you know, African-American officers who grew up in the city who said, I see it both ways. When I was growing up, I wasn't treated fairly by the police. I grew up in some rough neighborhoods, too. Now that I am the police, it's like I've seen kind of both sides of what we're supposed to do and the effect that the police can have on communities of color. But there's other officers who have looked at the DOJ report and A lot of them agree with the recommendations made in the DOJ report. Like, yes, we do need better training. But officers I've spoken with, there seems to be, especially white officers, you know, as far as being painted, you know, with one brush as being racist, that's how they look at it because they're not like that. And, you know, they insist they're not racist. And that's obviously something that's very troubling that, you know, when the federal government declares your department as being racist, that's something that frustrates them as individuals. And and that when they are policing um, black and Latino neighborhoods, they're doing what they think is right to the best of their ability. They're according to their training. And race isn't a factor. Ultimately, in talking to these officers, did you come away with the feeling that they were hopeful about the path forward when it comes to reform, when it comes to the relationship between the police and the communities? It was mixed. A lot of them feel that what's called for in these reforms are, well, handcuffing them, so to speak, because it's going to it's they feel like, you know, if they pursue criminals like that aggressively, uh, like they once did, they, they feel like they can get into a lot of trouble for it. They value their pensions. They have kids in college. They don't want to jeopardize that, basically. That's Chicago Tribune reporter Jeremy Gorner. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you.
16 Shots is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune. You can find out more about the case at wbez.org slash 16 Shots. Check this podcast feed regularly for updates from the trial of Officer Jason Van Dyke. And listen wherever you get your podcasts.